And good morning, familia. My name is Hannibal Rodriguez, one of the teaching pastors here at church, and I wanted to welcome you all again, whether you're here worshiping with us online. Uh, it is such a pleasure that we get to worship and get to do church together today. If you're visiting for the first time, we want to welcome you again. Uh, I just want you to know that we're here to love you and serve you in any way we can, so please let us know how we can love you or serve you. Before the preaching of the word, uh, I just want to share something with you really quick. Um, Many of you guys know, not, all, not everyone, but many of you guys know that last week our high school team, our high school ministry, uh, did their annual mission trip, and we went to Memphis. And this year, I got the chance to go with them, and I still don't know why I did that. Uh, <laughs> but I got to go with them, and it was, I got to say, it was an amazing week. Like, the, I got to see firsthand what the Lord is doing in our students and through our students, I got to see this amazing army of young people and their leaders doing amazing things for the glory of God and the joy of people. But on the other hand, it was a, a really complicated week. Just so you know, one of our leaders got sick early in the week and he spent a whole night in the hospital. Um, second to last day before returning, uh, quite a few of our students got really sick and another one of our leaders got really sick, so we, we decided to come one day early. Um, but as we're driving back, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm meditating, I'm exchanging things with, with the students, and I, I just got to tell you this. You should be proud of the students we have in this church. So I'm going to shout out to all the students that participated, all the students that are part of our ministry. My goodness, if I was a young person again, <laughs> that would never happen, but I would like to be part of that team. And I would like to have the leaders we have today. So please continue to pray for our students. Please continue to pray for what the Lord did in Memphis through our students. Please pray uh, for our leaders and the decisions we're making. And if you are a student and you're part of our high school ministry or you're not part of the high school ministry, you're missing, so please join us. Amen? All right. So today, we're finishing our series based on the book of Jonah, and we're going to be looking at Jonah chapter 4. Actually, we're going to be reading from Jonah chapter 3, verse 10, all the way to Jonah chapter 4, verse 11. But before we read, let me just say this. This is one of those books that probably will not make it into a good movie in Hollywood. Part of the reason why I say that is because the ending of the book is kind of depressing. So here we have the story of this prophet, a man of God, chosen by God, sent by God to proclaim the good news of God wanting to save people. And at the beginning, he doesn't want to. But then something happens. The Lord forces him to change him and to confront his heart. And he decides to go. And he preaches and a ton of people repent come to the saving knowledge of God. But the last chapter does not finish on a positive note. And I want us to think about that for a second. And I want us to dig into Jonah's heart. So as we dig into his heart, we dig into our heart. Amen? So I'm going to ask you to please stand for the reading of God's word. 
We're going to be reading from Jonah chapter 10, verse 11, to Jonah chapter 4, verse 11. And if you're still here, could you please say, I'm here. here. That was beautiful. Verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, talking about Nineveh, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Chapter 4, verse 1. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. A God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Verse 4. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at the place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in the shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant, I made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. Verse 7. But at dawn, the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east, um, provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it will be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. I am so angry, I wish I were were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? Lord, I pray that you speak to us today, that we learn to see what went wrong with Jonah so we don't repeat the story again. So we get to behave differently to what Jonah behaved. Because we do have a call. And we do have a mission. And we want to be faithful to that call. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus. And the church says, you may take a seat. If you are familiar with the story of Jonah, or you have been walking with us as we have gone through this amazing book, I think that you would agree with me that this is, this is a really good story. You know, there's drama, and there's action, and there's un- unexpected turns, and it forces you to ask questions, and it forces you to think. Um, and it's one of those stories that if you read it over and over again, it's amazing. Actually, the story tells you that when Jonah preached the gospel, 120,000 people got saved. That's how big the city was. And I don't know about you and how much you know about revivals, but I will call that a revival. 
120,000 people repented and believed in the Lord. Because of the message of one man, 120,000 people repented. That's a revival. Wouldn't that be cool? That in one sermon, 120,000 people repent. Like you get barely one or two to repent every service. What is interesting though about that story though, as I mentioned before, is that it finishes in a very negative note. It didn't finish in a negative note because the people at Nineveh unconverted. It didn't finish in a negative note because the Ninevites decided to change their mind. It finished in a negative note because of Jonah, the man of God, the prophet of the Lord, the one that knew the word of God, the one with the unique calling, the spiritual person. It is because of him that the story finishes with a negative note. How do I know that? Well, because people convert, and this is what he says. I became really angry. You know, the word angry here is really important because in the original, that word should be more like furious. That's why some translations actually use the phrase very angry. This is not someone that was annoyed because someone converted. This was not someone that was bothered because somebody else became a Christian. This was someone that was very, very angry because people came to the saving knowledge of God. And you got to ask the question, why? I don't know about you, but that's making sense to me. Why did Jonah get so upset? Wasn't that part of his calling? How, he, how could he possibly be upset that people repent and believe in God? Didn't he learn from the suffering process of being thrown into the storm and being inside the fish and God confronting him? Didn't he repent? Did he suffer? Didn't he learn the lesson? Why is Jonah so upset? So here's the most theological answer I could give you. I don't know. <laughs> the Bible doesn't tell you why is it that he's behaving in this way. It doesn't tell you directly, though. It doesn't tell you directly, but there's hints that we could learn from the text of what was happening in Jonah's heart that we should learn from. First thing that I could see in the text is that sin is actually really hard to kill. So if you think that if you're struggling with your sin, that thing is going to go away tomorrow, you got to think again. Sin is hard to kill. So as I'm reading this, I'm asking God the question, how is it that you're going to deal with this man? He's a lot like me. I just struggle with sin that is hard to kill. How are you going to deal with him? Because that way I know how you're going to deal with me. And this is interesting because the Lord asks questions. The way he's going to confront Jonah is by asking questions. And he asks three questions. One in verse uh, 4, one in verse 9, and one in verse 11. In verse 4, he says, is it right for you to be angry? In verse 9, he says, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And in verse 11, he says, should I not have great concern for Nineveh? Three questions. 
If you have read the New Testament, Jesus was the expert in asking questions. Actually, when Adam and Eve sin, the first thing that God does is ask question. Where are you, Adam? Now, I hope you know that when God is asking questions, it's not because he doesn't know. I hope you know that when God is asking, I hope you know that God is omniscient. He knows everything there is to know. I hope you know that God, that you know that God is omnipresent, meaning that he's everywhere at all times, that he knows everything that is physical and spiritual. So it couldn't be that God is asking these questions to Jonah because he didn't know what was inside Jonah. I think that God is asking these questions. So Jonah starts to ask the same questions. See, God asks you questions, the questions that you, that you should be asking. Why am I so angry? Why am I so angry about this plant? Why am I so angry that God is concerned for Nineveh? See, part of the reason why Jesus asked questions in the New Testament and the reason why God is asking questions to Jonah here is so we do a self-assessment. Questions invites you to think and meditate and check your heart. So here's the first question. Is it right for you to be angry? Now, this is going to get a little bit complicated, so bear with me. When God is asking these questions to Jonah, he is inviting Jonah, once again, to ask the question, is it right for me to get angry? This is the first big question. But within this first big question, there are three sub-questions that I'm, that I'm getting from the text. These are the three questions that Jonah needs to ask himself to answer the first big question. Did I lose you? Don't worry. These are the three questions that Jonah must ask. Why am I angry if I repented? Why am I angry if I'm not God? Why am I angry if I know him? This is all part of the first big question. Why am I angry if I repented? Now, I already said it, but this is an inter interesting story because chapter 1, God calls Noah, uh, Jonah to go and preach. And he runs away from God. And God confronts him. And when he's in the middle of the storm, as he's drowning, he repented. He believed, he repented and said, all right, Dad, all right God, I'll do it. So he preaches the gospel, chapter 3, everyone converts, and now he's upset. The question that I have to ask Jonah, was it, was it your repentance genuine? Look at what he says in verse 2, at the beginning of verse 2. When he knows that people convert, he says, I pray to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, in chapter 1? When I was still at home, that is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. And he tells you that in chapter 1, he struggled. Part of the reason why he didn't want to go over there, part of the reason why he's running away from God, listen up, church, is because he did not want these people to repent. Isn't that a crazy thing? Listen, is there anyone in your life that you would say, man, I wish they go to hell? 
We don't say it. But sometimes that's there. And Jonah is struggling with that. The reason why he is running away from God and he's calling is because he doesn't want these people to experience the peace of God, the joy of God, and the freedom of God because of the forgiveness of God. Was Jonah's repentance genuine? I really don't know. I don't know if Jonah repented because of the consequence, because of the consequences of his sin, or he repented because of his sin. You know, there's a difference between those two, right? There's a difference when you repent because you get caught. There's a difference when you repent because you are in trouble. There's a difference when you repent because you are struggling. There's a difference because if you repent because you want something in exchange. There's a difference between that and repenting because of what your sin is. An offense against God. And I think that Jonah probably repented from the consequences of his sin, but not his sin. And true and gradual transformation only happens when repentance is genuine. Not just because of the consequences of sin, but because of sin itself. My wife and I, uh, about a month ago, we were reading a book together. Uh, it's called Walking Through Fire, and it's the, the, uh, the testimony of this woman that suffered a lot. And in one of the chapters, um, we're reading almost the same chapter at the same time, uh, and the story says that her husband cheated on her. And she's describing how he repented, and, you know, they're seeking restoration and things like that. But as I'm reading this thing, something inside of me says, man, this repentance seemed like if he was repenting because he got caught or because of the consequences. So I told Heidi, listen, I'm nothing spiritual here. That's just how it is. I said, I wonder if he's going to cheat again. Ten chapters later, he cheated again. You know why? Because true and gradual transformation only happens when we repent for real, students say. When our repentance is genuine. Not just because of the consequence of our sin, but because we are sinful. The second sub-question behind the first big, big question that Jonah was supposed to ask is, why am I angry if I'm not God? Man, this is going to get real here for a second, like really fast. Look at what he says in verse 1. When he heard that people repented, Jonah said, this seems very wrong. <laughs> Listen, you know who, he, who he's talking to, right? He's saying that what God did was very wrong. The word wrong in the original language which I don't know why they don't use it in this translation. But he is, jo Jonah here is accusing God 
of, being, of doing something that is not just. He is accusing God of injustice. Listen up, church. He is angry because he thinks that the holy, transcendent, perfect God got it wrong. Did you know that you and I get angry when we think that the transcendent, holy, pure, full of wisdom God gets it wrong? Do you have an idea how depraved we can be? Who says to God, you made a mistake, dude? Who says to God, you got it wrong? This is not the way it's supposed to be. Once again, this is something that Christians usually will not say. But they think about it. You know how I know that? Because we ask the question, why? The moment you ask the question, you're questioning God's, God's doings. You know what's so dangerous about that? Jonah is playing God. Jonah is forgetting that God is God and he's not. Jonah is forgetting that there's only one God that is wise, omniscient, perfect, holy, and good. And he's not. True and gradual, and gradual change only happens when we believe that he's God and we are not. The third sub-question behind the first big question, the question that Jonah should have asked is, why am I angry if I know God? Now, this is crazy. If you have, if you have grown in a church, if you know your Bible, this is about to get really personal for a second. Look at what he says in the second part of verse 2. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. You know what's crazy about that statement? Everything Jonah says is right. He's got the right Bible. He's got the right theology. He's got the right uh, doctrine. Everything he says is right. Actually, he knows his Bible so and so well that the way he's describing God is the best way God describes himself. You know how I know that? Because in the Old Testament, that, that definition appears nine times in the Old Testament. One of the key passages where you find there is in Exodus chapter 34, when God is telling his people, after giving them the Ten Commandments, he's telling his people, I am a covenant God. You are my people, I am your God. I am the God that is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. Please don't ever forget that. So this is what Jonah knows. That God is gracious because he does not give people he gives people what they don't deserve. Jonah knows that. Jonah knows that God is a God of compassion, merciful, meaning he knows that God does not give people what they deserve. Jonah knows that. Jonah also knows that God is a God of slow anger. That means that he's patient. 
that he sticks around with his people even when they're as stubborn as Jonah was. Jonah knows that. Jonah knows that God is a God of abounding love. A better translation for that is a God of steadfast love, a God that has a love that, uh, a God of covenant. That it doesn't matter what his people do, if they have placed their faith in him, he never walks away from them, even when they're messing up. Jonah knows that. Right theology, right doctrine, right Bible, right understanding, right everything. What was his problem? He thought that there were some people that did not deserve that God. Let me say it again. He thought that there are categories of people that do not deserve that God. Isn't that crazy? See, Jonah didn't have any issues with him receiving the grace of God. Jonah did not have any issues with his people receiving the grace of God. What he didn't like is that that grace was extended to the people he did not like. See, Jonah didn't have issues receiving the mercy of God and his people receiving the mercy of God. You know what his issue was? He thought that there were certain people that didn't reserve, deserve the mercy of God. There were certain people that he wanted for God to pour his wrath. See, Jonah's, Jonah didn't have issue with the patience of God and the love of God. His problem was is that he thought that there was people that did not deserve that love and that patience. You know what Jonah's issue was? He thought that he was spiritually superior to the Ninevites. Tell me if that is not wrong. Question, church, because I love you. Do you have those categories? Is there a group of people that you would say, I love them, but please send them to hell? I believe that we might be living in the, last, in the last hundred years, I would say, some of the most biblical, most difficult times uh, to be Christians. I really, I really mean it. Actually, when the Lord was calling me to, to take the role of a senior pastor, that was one of the questions. Goodness sake, it's really hard to be a senior pastor nowadays. You know, it is difficult because everything that we have believed for the last 2,000 years is now is being questioned. Everything we have believed for 2,000 years. Some of the biblical positions we hold and we have held for 2,000 years now are being questioned. 
our position and sinful nature, our position and the atonement and the necessity of Jesus, our view and traditional marriage, our position and manhood and womanhood, our position against abortion, our position toward biblical justice, our position against racism, our commitment toward the inerrancy and sufficiency of the Scripture, our commitment to the importance of the local church, all these things that nobody ever questioned, now are being questioned, and our beliefs are being portrayed as ridiculous beliefs. This is the age in which Christians are picking churches not based on theological convictions, but philosophical preferences. We live in an era in which if you hold biblical truths, you will be labeled as too liberal for the hyper-conservatives and too hyper-conservative for the liberals. Just because you're holding biblical truths. So to be a Christian today, church, is hard. And yet, we do not have an excuse to not love the people who don't love us. You and I do not have an excuse. We do, you and I do not have permission to not love the people that is not like us. Did you know that that's what Jesus says when he called you to love your neighbor? He's not just calling you to love the church people. That's easy. Oh, not really. Sometimes it's complicated, but... If that's complicated, what he, can you imagine what it means to love people that don't even believe the things that we believe as a church? But that's our call. If you don't believe me, all you have to do is read Jeremiah chapter 29 and Luke chapter 10, and you would see that God calls us to love the very people who make fun of us. Actually, this is my conviction. That the more we hold to the truths of the gospel, that the more we hold to the truths of the Bible, the better we're going to be able to love the people who don't like us. And my conviction is that God will do and continue to do what he has been doing since the church started. When we love people well, people will get to know the gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding love of God. On one hand, we hold the truth of the Bible, and on the other hand, we love our neighbors radically. True and gradual change only happens when we want that the people that don't like us to receive the very thing we have. So let me ask the question again. Is there a category of people in your mind who you have a hard time loving? Go and love them well. If not, we're doing the exactly same thing that Jonah did. That was only the first question, church. The second two questions are actually going to go faster. Look at this, the second big question. Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? That's verse 9. 
Now, the Lord is going to find a way to deal with Jonah's heart in a very, very, in a unique way. So from verses 5 to 8, something happens. And I'm going to go super quick, and I'm not going to show you the verses because we already read them. But this is what happened. Jonah gets out of the city. He goes to the east of the city, and now he's seeing the text says to see what happened to the city. Apparently, Jonah thinks that these people did not repent for real. And he wants to see what is going to happen to them. Maybe he's standing outside and thinking God is going to change his mind and wrath is going to come upon them. Fire from heaven. But as he's sitting there, God provides this plant. And the plant provides shade. And when Jonah is super comfortable, God brings an animal, a worm. And this thing eats the plant so the shade is gone. And then he brings this wind and Jonah is about to faint. And when he's about to faint because his comfort was taken away, look at what he says in the second part of verse 8. Uh, this one. It would be, this is what he says. It would be better for me to die than to live. And the reason why I put verse 3 right next to it is because he's using the same expression that he used before. Tell me if there's not something wrong with this man. So people repent, and he says, oh, I want to die. And then the plan goes away, and he says, oh, I want to die. Why would, why would the Lord do that? Because he wants to show him how disordered his loves were. Look at what he tells him in verse 10. You have been concerned about this plant. Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang, over, it sprang up overnight, and it died overnight. The reason why I'm highlighting the word concern there is because that word in the original could also be translated as mercy. Listen up, church. He tells them, you have more mercy and a plant than what you have and people that will go to hell. You are more, more concerned with comfort than people created in the image of God. You care more about yourself than what you care about people without Jesus. This concept of mercy, church, was one of the things that the Lord used in the first century church. A few years ago, uh, Rodney Stark wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity in which he's examining the lives of Christians in the, during the first century, and he's trying to explain why is it that Christianity grew, uh, grew so fast and so, so much. And this is what he says, that one of the things that made Christianity so effective in the first century was this. And I quote, Christianity taught that mercy is one of the primary virtues. That a merciful God requires humans to be merciful. God loves humanity and Christians may not please God unless they love one another. This was something entirely new. Now check this out. 
perhaps even more revolutionary was the principle that Christian love and charity must extend beyond the boundaries of family and tribe. It extends beyond the Christian community. What made Christianity effective in the first century is that they knew how to love one another and they knew how to love people that were not like them. People that did not belong to the tribe. That did not belong to your political tribe, social class tribe, ethnicity tribe, preferences tribe, sports tribe, whatever tribe. The evidence of our Christianity is how we love one another and how we love people that is not like us. And God wanted Jonah to see that his loves were in wrong order. You love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and you love your neighbor as yourself. Question number three. Big question number three. Should I not have great concern for Nineveh? And this is how the text finishes. This is God telling him, should I not concern about these 120,000 people? Should I not have mercy on these 120,000 people who are morally corrupt in their heart? They don't know the difference between their right hand and their left hand. Should I not care about the things that they need like animals? So the question for us today in this last minute is, why is it that this book finishes this way? What happened to Jonah? Did he repent? Did he repent again? Did he walk away from God? Did he learn how to love people well? Did he become a person of mercy? We don't know. And it doesn't matter. Do you know why this book finishes the way it does? So we ask those questions. The reason why the book finishes the way it does, and we don't know what happened to Jonah, is so we ask the questions. Am I a person of mercy? Have I learned to love those that are not like me or disagree with me? Do I want the grace of God, the compassion of God, the patience of God, the covenant love of God extended to other people that are not like me? Am I willing to deny myself for the sake of others? That's why that book finishes that way. Can anybody live that? I think so. I think that it's possible for us to live the way Jonah did not live. For two reasons. One, because we have the Holy Spirit living in us. And two, because we have the gospel. See, true transformation, true and gradual transformation is when you see yourself as a recipient of the grace, compassion, patience, and love of God. And how do you do that? Obviously, by looking at the cross. Doesn't God love you enough for him to send his son for you? Doesn't God love you enough for God to not exercise 
uh, the wrath, his wrath upon you, but give it to his son. Didn't God give you what you don't deserve? The forgiveness, his adoption, his redemption. Didn't God gave Jesus what you deserve? The wrath that we all deserve. Didn't God love you well? Have you ever asked the question, why is it that Jesus loves you? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why does God love you? It can be your looks, people. It can be your charisma. It cannot be your talents. None of us have enough of that. It cannot be your morality. Do you know why God loved you? Do you know why God sent Jesus to the cross? Because he loved you. Just because. When you see yourself like that, then you want that in the lives of the people that don't like you. May the Lord grant us to be a church like that. May the Lord grant us to be a church that knows how to love well. Inside the church and outside the church. I want to invite you to respond to the Lord in adoration. And I'm going to ask you to stand. And as we sing this song, I want you to use it as a confession. Use it as a confession. And as a recommissioning of your calling. Let me pray for us. Lord, we are about to respond in adoration after you speaking to our hearts and minds. After you reminding us that we have received the grace of God, the mercy of God, the patience of God, and the love of God in Jesus Christ. It is out of that, Lord, that we repent. Like, repent if in our hearts there are categories of people that we don't want to love. Please help us do that. And please, Lord, help us never to cease to be amazed of the beauty of Jesus Christ and what he did for us. Please make it happen. We pray for this in the name of Jesus and the church says.